Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. Today, I'm very happy to be talking with author Suzanne Cope. She is a food writer, journalist, and lecturer at New York University. She's written about food and culture for a variety of publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, CNN, and the BBC. Her work has focused on the intersection of food politics and social justice. Her latest book, Power Hungry, Women of the Black Power Panther Party and Freedom Summer and Their Fight to Feed a Moment tells the story of how two women use food to fight for social change during the civil rights movement. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Suzanne, for our listeners who are unfamiliar with your work, where are you from and where do you live in the U.S.? Sure. I, um, I'm from actually Western New York, a small town in um, south of Buffalo, but I live in Brooklyn. And um, as you noted, I teach at NYU. When did you decide in your life that writing was would basically be your life? <laughs> uh, well, I don't know if it's my life, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I actually came to writing a little bit late. Um, you know, my mom would would tell stories about, and I remember too, like writing some stories when I was younger, but um, but I really love to read. And so I went uh, to college, to undergrad. I went to um, a SUNY state school and I was an English major because that's what you do when you love to read. And I didn't really know what I was gonna do afterwards. Um, and I, there was someone who came to campus and she talked about going to this grad program. Um, it wasn't a degree program, it was just a summer program where she um, learned the ins and outs of book publishing. So I, I thought that sounded great. Would it like be surrounded by books? I was really excited about that. And so I did that program at, um, uh, at where was I? It was in Denver. And um, this was a long time ago. And then I ended up getting a job at Houghton Mifflin uh, in Boston. And so I moved to Boston and I was surrounded by books and working for a book publisher. Um, and I made a lot of really great friends who I'm still friends with. And it wasn't until I was in the book publishing world that I thought, oh, I I could be a writer. I could write. And it was interesting because um, I don't know. It wasn't something that I didn't know any writers. I didn't, you know, I didn't really know that that could be my job, which sounds ridiculous having read so many books. But um, it just goes to show you that seeing a job modeled for you is, you know, as a kid is so important um, to imagining what you could be in the future. And so Absolutely. I, after being there for a couple of years, I, um, and also I have to give some credit to my husband because um, I had met him, um, you know, after a couple of years there and he is a musician. And so I really saw someone pursuing their art and also encouraging me to pursue what I began to see as my art. And um, so I went back and got my MFA, knowing that I wanted to teach with that as well um, in creative nonfiction. And then I started teaching with that. And then I um, quickly realized that it didn't really prepare me to teach um, composition and, and first year writing, which is primarily what I was teaching. So I went back and got my PhD in adult learning. And that was really great because I got to delve into um you know, the, the, the psychology, the um, cognitive development of writing and of teaching of writing. And I got to learn how to be a better teacher. But at the same time, since you're teaching someone to do the craft that you are also doing, you learn a lot about um, yourself as a writer and um, how to think about, talk about writing. So, um, so yeah, I really learned so much about teaching and writing um, in both of those programs. And um, once I finished that, because I had to be so focused on scholarship, during my time um, in this very fast paced doctoral program. Um, after that is when I was able to really think about what is it that I, I want to write. And um, I turned to food writing soon after that um, because I saw it as a way, um, the food writing discipline, um, scholarly discipline, it was often, you could see kind of the, the personal informing the um, scholarly and the scholarly informing the personal. And that was a direction that I, I went into right after I graduated. What inspired you to explore the intersection of food and the Black freedom struggle? Well, um, like many people I've spoken to or read stories of anecdotally, um, after a certain presidential election, um, I was looking yeah. around me and I saw a lot of um, people in the food world that I was kind of connected to using food as a tool for activism. And um, I had been working on this really interesting book about um, book proposal, book project. I wasn't you know, actively 
writing the full manuscript on this woman um, who was, you know, kind of combining politics and and social movement and um, and food in in Cuba, um, and it. But my my focus kind of shifted towards what was happening around me at that time, um, and also at that time. Cuba had been in the news, you had been able to travel to Cuba, and then it became pretty clear that you weren't going to be able to travel there as easily anymore. So um, so I, I kind of shifted my focus. And I was sort of researching these stories of um, how people used food as um, a tool for political and social change. And so I had this book project um, that I was dreaming of, of being like wanting to be informed and inspired by these women of maybe like the last century-ish, you know, in modern times. And so I was looking at, um, you know, World War II, and I was looking at um, at the, the civil rights movement and other times globally. And so I had these stories that I was kind of collecting. And um, in speaking with my agent, um, we kind of homed in on um, Aileen Quinn uh, and her story, just, you know, thinking this is something that seems like people were, would be interested in. And, and it was something we were both interested in, you know, with, um, you know, with, various struggles that were happening at that time. Um, but because I had first imagined it as part of a larger book project, I was a little worried because that's the interesting thing about research, right? Is that um, when you start to research, you know that there's stories out there, but you can't research something if it's if it's not there to be found, you know, and there's so much to be right. said. We probably don't have time around this, but of course you're um, a librarian of what are these research silences, right? Um, yeah. You know, you can identify where there's not information, but it's really hard to fill in those silences, especially as, you know, we get farther and farther from that time period. So um, she and I were kind of brainstorming of what a book focused on Allen Quinn's story might look like. And um, and it was interesting because she brought up, I believe it was, it was um, you know, maybe we both had kind of talked about the Black Panther Party. It might have been her idea um, as well. And I just thought to myself, I was like, oh, you know, I know that story. And then I realized I kind of checked myself and checked my own biases um, and been like, wait a second, do I know that story? Do I know what I think I know about the Black Panther Party? And so I quickly, or you know, soon in there after I did some research and I realized I was so wrong that I what I thought I knew about the Black Panther Party um, was in fact fed by a lot of the propaganda that um, you know had been out there and also very narrowly focused. You know, I mean, like, oh, they started this breakfast program and they were this militant group. And I realized, wait, that is just that is not a complete story. And so I um, was looking for someone, um, you know, I was like, okay, there's a couple women who were, because I really wanted to focus on the story of women. Um, and there was a couple, there were a couple of women who were talked about in leadership and, you know, they had a lot, a fair amount had been written about, um, you know, Kathleen Cleaver and some of these other big names. And I thought, is there a woman whose story hasn't really been told and um, whose story I could really amplify? And, um, I came across Cleo's name in a couple different places and I kind of tracked her down on, um, you know, on the internet and I asked her if she'd be willing to chat. And um, I remember very distinctly our first conversation I had taught in the morning and I was in my office at work and um, we just had this wonderful conversation. And I began to really see how these stories of the Black Panther Party um, and what Cleo was doing, how they really could you know, intersect with what was happening, um, the stories I was learning about Aileen Quinn and the voting rights movement. And um, I developed a book project, a proposal around that. Um, and so you really, for a proposal, you really have to map it out and, and, and do a lot of research and know where everything, you know, how it's all going to work together and have a very clear structure for the book. I mean, proposals, for those who don't know, are often, you know, 60, 70, 80 pages long. They're they're really long and detailed. But um, but of course that means you have more work and more research to do once the book is sold. And so uh, I'm sure we could talk about this in a minute, but um the the ways that these stories intersected, um, I didn't I didn't anticipate until after I really dug into the research of the book. You know, in reading your book, I was really um I really uh, it came to realize how little I knew about the black um, struggle in the sixties. Now I had seen a lot of stuff in history class, obviously. And I took, you know, classes in college where we, we talked about it. This book to me though, really seemed to kind of make it more real and to kind of also make it more personal with the people that you talked to. Now you talked to Cleo Silvers and Eileen Quinn who were, you know, really big you know, movers and shakers in this uh, breakfast program. And you talk about this in Power Hungry. 
What was your perception as you started doing the research? What changed for you um, and like your viewpoint of this time period and that and the, the breakfast program and, and the necessity for it? Sure. So thinking just about the um, yeah, the Black Panther Party work. Well, first of all, it was interesting at the time because I started the research right before COVID. And I was so lucky and glad that um, I had planned a couple of trips, like really, you know, in January of 2020 to meet these, you know, people in, um, Ellen Quinn's no longer alive, but I met her daughter. I met other people who knew her. Um, I spent some time with Cleo. And um, and so that those relationships were so instrumental to being able, and I went to Macomb to being able to see um, what where I was writing about and and have a relationship with people who I would later only be able to talk to on the phone or Zoom. Um, so that was really necessary. But then we're in COVID times and in Brooklyn, I, you know, and also many other places, there was a lot of talk around mutual aid and how you're helping your neighbor. And there was, and then of course, um, BLM protests were happening. So there was so much that was happening, um, you know, in, in the time, in that current time that was echoing what had happened decades prior. And so, you know, I, I was having this historical, you know, deep dive and, and then watching these same issues come up again, which of course, as I just mentioned, that was kind of my um, impetus for, for wanting to research this more anyway. And so I guess, you know, I don't know if I want to say I was surprised, but it was, you know, interesting to be able to see the deeper, um, you know, history behind issues that were still so resonant. And of course, get angry about it and say, why, yeah. why are these things still happening? And why did we not know how much surveillance was happening, both in Mississippi, uh, you know, upon Aline and these other civil rights workers, but then, you know, more, um, more commonly known is, you know, what the FBI was was um, doing with the Black Panthers. And then also research, you know, doing all these interviews with people, with, particularly with Panthers, and having them tell me stories of how they were continually surveilled and undermined. Um, but I was also encouraged, too, even though I was so, you know, frustrated and, and angry at times, because there was so much hope and there was so much dedication to the cause. And I mean, these were people in both cases that were um, both places that were really willing to, um, I mean, they told me, they said, I was willing to die for this cause. I, and I really truly believed that I, that we would create change. And, um, and they did of course create so much change in these two separate places. Um, and there were people who were active in both of these causes. Um, you know, sometimes we look back and be like, oh, why didn't, you know, I wish that we'd had, you know, we had stronger voting rights laws now. But um, when you think about where they were starting from, and also the great force, I mean, this is the force of a nation, the FBI, the police, you know, state police, like this is who they were fighting against, and they still were able to make such change. Um, you know, that's, that's so inspiring. And I hope that it's inspiring to people today. Um, I think there might be some people out in the uh, podcast audience who are unfamiliar with the Black Panther Breakfast Program. Can we talk about this a little bit? Um, can you can you tell people about it and then why it was so controversial? And also, how is it different from the free lunch programs? Because I think that's that's a distinction. Sure. Uh, so it was interesting. One of my first interviews, um, I went to Macomb. And then I came across the name of um, Muhammad Hayes, um, and he was. I found him um, while I was, you know, on this research trip. Uh, he was in New Orleans, and I was flying in and out of New Orleans. So I asked if we could meet, and um, and he was wonderful. He sadly passed away um, in the last couple of years, but I'm so honored to have been able to meet him. And um, and he told me this great story at the beginning, and he was um, active in voting rights and. Um, and and other issues in the civil rights era and then he also um did stuff with the panthers so he was a really useful person to chat with but he was telling me about how ella baker who was um you know a a, a female leader um with NAACP and with and then she started started um SNCC which is the the student um nonviolent coordinating um committee that we um that I talk about that that you know started working on these voting rights efforts um and she really taught Muhammad um, and others, of course, um, that what you have to do is you go to the people and you say, what can I do for you? And um, don't go in thinking that if you want to, if you truly want to serve a population, don't go in thinking, you know, what they want or what you want to do for them. You go in and say, 
what can I do for you? What yeah. do you need from me? And um, and so I'm telling this story because he was doing this initially with voting rights, where a lot of people were like, this is too hard. Um, this is not what you should be focusing on. But he said, we went to the people and we said, what, what can we do? You know, and they said, we want to be able to vote. And then he said, after the voting, which happened first chronologically, um, a couple of years before the Black Panthers, he then um, was called up by the Panthers and they were, they said, come help us. You did such amazing organizing. Um, you know, can you come help us figure out how we can organize and serve the people in the same way? And, um, and, and I, I remember this moment so well, because we're sitting there at this coffee shop and, I, and, and he's just telling, he's making these stories come together in this way. I had no idea it would happen. And I said, don't tell me you helped start the breakfast program. He's like, I didn't know. I didn't tell them to serve the kids breakfast. I just told them to go ask the people what they wanted. And they did. And the people said, well, I, you know, don't always have food in, you know, in the house, or I have to go to work early and my kids sometimes don't, you know, get breakfast and get to school on time. And so that's what came out of these conversations was, you know, breakfast would help serve the people. That's what the people wanted. And so they, um, they, they were talking with, you know, other local partners in, and this is in the Bay area, um, California Bay area. And, um, there was another, um, there was a priest who they were also asking because the Panthers were connected with some other parishioners saying, you know, could you help us reach the people, serve the people and breakfast came up and they said, okay, we can help host it. And, um, and, and father Neil, um, Earl Neil was, the pastor who is known for, um, you know, helping them start this first breakfast program and connecting with parishioners and, and giving them a place. And um, I found out that he stayed in Alan Quinn's house, which I couldn't believe another moment of these stories coming together. And that was something I didn't know until, you know, into the, into the process. And he had volunteered in Macomb um, when he was a priest um, working out of Chicago. And I was just amazed at that connection and um you know it still gives me chills just thinking that the, these stories came together like that and so they started to serve make, make breakfast and they went through all of the health you know like we don't we don't we want to make sure that we are doing this legally that we have all the certifications we need um they went out and got donations from the community because they very much believed that the community you know these are people in the community the community you know bodegas and and store grocery stores should help support the people who are supporting them and it just grew it caught on like wildfire and and um and and the children came and within a couple months um they it told all of their chapters throughout the country it said okay you all to be a black panther chapter you need to start your own breakfast program and so they you know told them what they did and they all you know began their own breakfast programs and found the same thing that um all over the country in small towns and big cities that this is what the people wanted it helped them connect with the community um and not only did they serve them a hot breakfast um but they helped them with homework they made sure they got to school on time um and they they taught them, you know, a lot of the history that wasn't being taught in the schools. Like, you know, like Cleo tells these great stories there in the book of, you know, being like, all right, do who, who invented the traffic light, a black man, you know, and just talking about, you know, black history and, and also Hispanic history, because they were very supportive of, um, you know, the Hispanic worker, um, farm workers and other issues. Um, and in New York, um, they connected with the Young Lords, who were, uh, you know, a Hispanic group similar to the Panthers doing other social justice things. But what I think a lot of people don't, um, some criticisms, um, and I and I very much state in the book that they're unfair, I believe, um, is that they only did these social justice, these, these community programs um, to to kind of garner favor with the community and no way, like from the very beginning, what the founders said they wanted um, to do was serve the community and, and feed them, shelter them, you know, all the basic, you know, everything that you need to survive. And so that was definitely part of their mission from the beginning, um, their 10 point, point program that they mentioned. Um, and then, you know, the they were so popular and that was partly or very much so why the FBI wanted to shut them down because, um, you know, as 
some of the Panthers have said, as Cleo said, and as, you know, other, other Panthers have said, and I quote in the book, um, you know, we're demonstrating, A, that the government is not fulfilling the needs of the people, even though there is enough to go around. You know, there's clearly enough food for everybody, but for the reasons that uphold, um, you know, the power structure, not everyone still has access to food. And they were pointing that out. And they were, you know, they were, Cleo would say, I am a socialist. And this is what I believe in, that we should share the food. This should, we, we should not just be, you know, capitalists trying to make a buck. We should share and make sure everyone has enough. And so, um, you know, they saw themselves as pointing out the deficiencies of a capitalist system um, and turning people in, you know, onto their, their uh, political point of view. And so that, was dangerous to the power structure. Um, and also they were becoming very popular. People, you know, were listening to them and they were becoming influential in the community. So to think, um, you know, at their heyday, they were, you know, there's a st statistic that they were serving more children breakfast than the entire state of California. Um, and so, you know, there was a, a lunch program because kids are typically in school during lunch. And so they did have a program for that. But this very much helped to show that there is a, a problem with, um, you know, with food security for breakfast as well. And it wasn't until a couple of years afterwards that, um, you know, in part due to the popularity of this, certainly many, most people trace the legacy of the free breakfast program to, um, to what the, you know, the, what the Panthers were doing. They did institute a national um, breakfast program in addition to the lunch program a couple years after, um, into the seventies, I forget the exact year, but after the Panthers were for the most part disbanded and not doing their breakfast programs anymore. I wanna go back to something you said um, about, you know, making sure it was all legal um, and, you know, by the book, because I, I, I've known in my lifetime, I've seen so many times when people would talk about the breakfast program and they they made it sound like an optional program like it wasn't necessary or needed but it was very much needed and i know there's been a lot of political opposition to lunch and breakfast programs since i was young and i've seen them throughout the years including now and during the last presidency what are some of the oppositions you've seen um, to the programs and some of the things that have been done to kind of stifle them because people don't want people knowing that, you know, there's hunger going on in America. Well, I do think that this kind of ties into this whole, you know, if you can't feed your children, then you're doing something wrong. You're a bad yeah. parent. You haven't made good choices. And, um, you know, if, if there's one thing I hope that, um, you know, we're collectively as a country beginning to see is that, you know, being hungry is not a, a, a judgment. It's not um, a moral yeah. failing, right? Um, and we see this a lot actually illustrated in the Ellie Inquin story is that there were so many um, economic um, uh, like ways that they, you know, oppressed the Black community economically to keep yeah. them to the white power structure. And so that, those were more extreme ways where you see, um, you know, barely paying living wages, um, but not you know, but these families, you know, say sharecroppers in um, Mississippi, they they have no way to go and find another job. Like they, they literally do not have enough money to move to another place. Of course, many of them scraped together what they could. That's why we had, you know, these the mass migration soon after that, um, great migration soon after that. And um, if they did anything that was politically unsavory for a lot of the white power structure, they would maybe kick them off the farm where they were living, they would fire them, um, you know, they would find them so many ways that, you know, keeping people as close to subsistence as possible was a, a tool of oppression. And, um, you know, I tell the story in my book, and I was largely re retelling it from other scholars who, um, who told it, but um, that there was a time too where there was food assistance available and the white power structure chose to withhold that um, food assistance uh, as as like a political um, you know retribution for what they saw were you know mostly poor black people who were trying to um, to gain the right to vote, and so those are extreme. But when you think about them and apply them to what's happening in let's just say New York City, which is where the other part of the book takes place, I mean you still have people who are living as close to subsistence as possible. Um, yeah. you know, I think that we've 
kind of, you know, and I'm not going to go into the details, but kind of, you know, no longer really talking about food deserts in quite the same way as we maybe did a decade ago. But still, when you think about um, the cost of food in a city, what's available to eat, um, you know, Cleo actually later um, after the Panthers did a lot with community gardens, and I'm very active in community gardens in New York, and she was up in the Bronx and in northern Manhattan. And, um, you know, you think about all the ways that actually food is expensive, food is withheld, um, you know, of course, these are ways to oppress a people. And, um, you know, we perhaps some people have heard the stories of of the kids who didn't have enough money to eat lunch in various schools around the nation. Um, I know they came out, I was paying attention to them when I was writing the book a couple of years ago, but I, I've heard them before and since. And of, there's always extra food at the cafeterias. And I mean, anyone who has a kid, anyone yeah. who's been to at a cafeteria and to withhold food from a child, I mean, how is that in any way um, morally acceptable? And so, no. you know, when you start to look at all the political underpinnings, it's not, are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? And I'm using scare quotes here. It's like, really, why Why is food a, a commodity? Why is food something that, no. that's there to be withheld? Why are you not just feeding people with the food that you have? And, um, you know, I think that's very much what, what both of these stories, you know, we're, we're trying to, to illustrate and what they were just doing naturally is just saying, we will get the food and we will give it to the people who are hungry because that is a basic human right. This program stretched across the United States from uh, California to New York City, but they were also, you know, in, in my mind, they were uniformly run by women. Why do you think that was the case? Well, there were, and Cleo would say, there are plenty of men who were doing this work, um, but, Actually, the Panthers were um, were were mostly women. Uh, they were two thirds, as many as perhaps at one point three quarters um, of the Panthers were women. And so you have mostly women in the Panthers. You have women who are, of course, um, you know, often this is thought of feeding people, helping children is often thought of as women's work, even though um, they did a lot of um, effort within the Panthers to involve the the males and say, um, you know, you need to watch the kids as well. You need to help with the, everyone help with the breakfast program. But um, I think it also speaks to the great leadership of women um, and organizational skills. And I, I am a mother and I have done a lot of research thinking uh, both for this book, but also elsewhere, just, you know, all of these skills that we don't think of as being as valuable, um, you know, financially to, um, or even just valued in general in our society of, of multitasking and organizing and, um, and, and cooking and doing all of these things that are really important and we're important when you're feeding a large group of people. I mean, they put on, I don't want to call it a party, but they put on a, a catered event every single day. Yeah. And you know, this is a full-time job. And so um, that really led me down um, the value of women's work and feminized work. Of course, this is not just the work of women and it wasn't in these books either, but it is traditionally feminized work and um, seen as the purview of women. And, um, you know, and I also through this book, you know, of course you, I'm, I'm on here as a food writer and I still consider myself a food writer, but, um, you know, I've, I've kind of expanded my scope to um, feminize work more broadly because so much of this is not just about food, although a lot of it is, is, you know, just thinking about what are the ways that um, these roles that women, um, typically women, and of course our, you know, our conversation around gender is continuing to expand, but, um, you know, typically feminized um, roles, um, the roles that women typically have have uh, held that aren't always given the respect that they um, deserve. How are they um, so important and so powerful? And um, I'm trying to give those the respect and do um, the term activist mothering was something that comes up in the book. Um, you know, I, I say coined by Francois Hamlin, but I've since talked to her after I finished the book. Um, for another podcast, and she told me that she actually borrowed the term as well. Um, and but I still love this term. And even though Cleo never had biological children of her own, she readily has said multiple times that she embraces this term as an activist mother and thinking about these typically mothering skills um, that she certainly thinks has, you know, have been her strength uh, among her strengths. So she has many strengths for her um, for her activist life, and I really want to give. Um, yeah, give, give, you know, strength and power to those, 
those skills that women are using all the time and that were so necessary in COVID, out of COVID. Um, mutual aid, when we think about that, what is it? It's so often feeding people. It's so often organizing a lot of information and a lot of people and a lot of things, you know, and, and, and making sure people have clothes to wear and, and um, their, their home is taken care of. You know, these are often thought of as women's work and, and it's so important and perhaps arguably the most important work that you could do. In reading your book, I was um, surprised to find out that there were breakfast programs before the Black Panther breakfast programs that existed in, in the past. Can you talk about those a little bit? Um, do you mean, what do you mean exactly? Do you mean the um, just people feeding yeah. others broadly? I mean, I yeah. think it's just a matter of, um, you know, of, of seeing the need in the community and filling it, you know? I mean, the Panthers kind of, I don't want to say branded it because they did not intend to brand it but because they were a national organization and they you know did ask their members who were often you know pretty visible members of the community to you know be doing this work um and of course they use this as a talking point to further their um political agenda and i mean that in a positive way that they're saying look look at we all you know this is possible to to feed people um if only we you know, didn't, you know, didn't limit food access to people. Um, but of course, you know, you could look at the history of often the, you know, Black community was often, um, you know, not, uh, did not have a lot of money, often had to rely on on community to help each other, um, mutual aid. And I talk a little bit about this in the book too, just the, a brief history of mutual aid. Of course, you can't really give a history of it, but it's something that was always very prevalent in the Black community, just saying we are going to, you know, feed each other and, um, you know, and not, and not be thinking about how to withhold food, but how to share what we have. And so, you know, it's been great to see more recently that people are coming back to this concept of mutual aid. And, and also, I think, increasingly giving credit to these communities that had really did have to rely on it because they were left out of the, you know, power structures, but, um, you know, also did this out of kindness and goodness and, um, and, and community mindedness. And it was a positive thing because they felt not just, you know, insular and within their smaller family, but part of something bigger. And, um, you know, I think that's so valuable and I'm glad we're getting back to that. You write about Cleo Silvers in the book, who was instrumental in running the Black Panther Party's free breakfast program in New York City. Can you talk about how she got uh, involved in starting the breakfast program in New York? Oh, Cleo tells the story so great. And so I'm not um, going to be able to do it justice, but she had been doing, she actually, um, was um, working in New York. She was from Philadelphia, and um, and she was working in kind of the precursor to AmeriCorps. Um, and so they sent her and someone else to, and other people too. But you know, everyone had a partner to work in different you know places, often in cities, um, but not always. And um, places where they needed young people to you know help work in the community. And so she um, really got to know her community well was doing things with kids um in like after school and um because she was working with kids she often got to you know she would have to go to their apartments to see like can I get permission to take this you know to have this kid in after school and so she saw how people were living um she saw that there were these you know horrific um uh, you know, decrepit apartments that the landlords would not take care of. This is, you know, the Bronx in the 1970s. And, um, and she saw the Panthers working there as well. So she got to know the Panthers. The Panthers were active in the community, even did um, like karate at their dojo. And so she knew them, but she wasn't really thinking, oh, I'm going to join them because she was doing her own thing. Um, and it wasn't until she got a job at Lincoln Hospital um, where she, and they were, they were working to, um, organizing to take over the hospital to protest the horrific state of healthcare um, that she began working with some Black Panthers there. And there's this great um, documentary that came out just a year or so ago called Takeover. Cleo's in it. Um, it was on the New York Times site at one point. So folks should check it out. Um, it was nominated um, for awards. And and um, the Panthers invited her to join. They're like, you know, sister, we love the work you're doing. You know, you want to join us. And so she, they sent her down and she tells this great story um, where she ran down to the Panther office and she met Afeni Shakur, uh, mother of Tupac. And although he wasn't born oh, yet. Wow. And, yeah. And she became very good friends with Afeni. Um, and, you know, she 
welcomed her into the fold and um, she became a Panther that day. And, um, you know, she just continued doing the work she was doing and then joined them and everyone um, was expected to work in the breakfast programs. And so she, she certainly did her time in the breakfast programs and, um, and helped organize those and, and helped do so many other things. Um, um, Afeni was among other things, including breakfast program work. Um, she was helping uh, tenants and, and Cleo helped with this too, where Cleo, because she was doing this AmeriCorps stuff, um, it wasn't called AmeriCorps, but um, she um, be befriended or, or came into contact with local code enforcement guys who, um, who would come see these horrific apartments and would, and kind of were, were telling her and Afeni um, learned in similar ways, like, this is how you can help these people who are living in these in these horrible conditions fight back and so you know they could document all of these code violations put their money in escrow and so the panthers helped there are still multiple buildings today that are co-op that are owned by people um and you know descendants of families that um the black panthers helped to take these buildings back from these um from these delinquent landlords and then use their rent money to fix it up and own and actually have some equity. So it's really amazing, not just what they did with um, food, but also with housing and, and, and many other, um, many other issues too. Can we talk a little bit about uh, Aline Quinn as well? And can you tell any stories about her uh, that you found out about doing research about the book? Um, Eileen was, I mean, everyone who knew her, who talked to me, was just like, she was a force. Um, I listened to oral histories as well. She was just, she was a, a, a big woman. She was tall, imposing, always dressed, you know, to the nines. And um, she was one of the only um, female um, business owners in Macomb, which is a small city in about a hundred miles north of New Orleans. And, um, and she owned a tavern, a restaurant. Um, she was also a bootlegger. And um, her daughter told me and said, you know, she was proud of it because this is what she had to do to um, to to help support her family. But um, being one of the only women and also, you know, in a patriarchal world where there's only so many options for women, she kind of had the in and she was a, a single mom as well with uh, she had four kids. And, um, you know, she could talk with the other moms and help, you know, kind of convince them to perhaps, um, you know, try to uh, register to vote, um, help with the cause um, of voter, reg voter registration and other civil rights efforts in Macomb. Um, but she also was well-respected among the men. She was a successful business owner. Um, you know, she really, you know, had the ear of a lot of people was seen as a community leader and one of the few women who had that role. But, um, you know, there's some great stories because there was a lot of, you know, horrific arrests, beatings of um, student activists, of local activists, and, um, you know, of, they would be in perhaps jailed for doing a, for a peaceful protest. And um, she would help, she and some of the women that worked with her would help bring food into the jail. You could bring in food and feed these activists. Yeah. And um, in doing so, she also was the link between the activists and the outside world. And she would continue their work. These other women would continue their work. And this is what I think is like, is the paradox perhaps, right? Is that she was so underestimated by the power structure that they really did allow her to go in and, you know, these elaborate, delicious meals. Um, you know, uh, Muhammad Hayes, who's one of the people who had these meals and knew her and and was jailed for a time said oh yeah people were like gaining weight in prison because the food was so rich and of course this is them the black community saying we are taking care of our own and we are feeding them and and you know they're going to eat better than the jailers you know because this is what we do for our people um but they so underestimated her that they allowed her to do this and not thinking that she was using this as a planning session and, and doing all the work that she was doing and so you know on one hand these feminized roles um are underestimated, but on the other, other hand, it could help some of these women um, have, um, you know, more leadership, have more opportunities if they know how to work it within this, you know, outdated system. And so she really knew how to use these roles to her advantage. Um, but of course, she was not immune from retribution. Um, you know, they would, she had was beaten, arrested, fined unfairly, of course, and her house was bombed with her, with two of her young children inside. Um, luckily, everyone was okay, but, um, you know, that was really the moment that um, this, um, you know, Freedom Summer, which was 
this main, um, you know, this is a kind of the moment what um, the couple months period that I was mostly talking about in the book, where um, you had a lot of activists working to um, educate people so that they could um, pass these um, onerous uh, tests, poll tests to be able to vote um, while, while doing, you know, freedom schools, teaching people our history, um, you know, really encouraging people to be active and engaged. Um, and then the bombing of her house was really kind of the moment when people were like, this is enough. There was so much intimidation. There were, there was murder, there were, um, you know, beatings, there were arrests. Um, and, and the FBI was really turning, you know, turning the other way and refusing to get involved. I mean, it was a very, very, very dangerous time. And anyone who was doing this work was truly had every right to fear for their lives, um, not to mention their livelihoods, their homes. And so it was when Aline, who a mom, um, a woman, um, you know, it shouldn't matter, but it did, you know, saying you're targeting a woman now um, when her house was, was bombed. That was really the moment where people are like, enough, we are not, you know, this, this cannot continue. And she actually met um, the president um, soon thereafter, uh, you know, all these calls for federal government to get involved. She finally, um, you know, met, the, was was flown to D.C. with a few other women from her town who had also suffered violence. And, you know, how much that, I mean, that did change things. The president re really didn't help individually. Um, you know, I, I listened to recordings of them talking and him later, you know, being mad that their conversation was misconstrued, but she got to say her piece. And and after that, the, there were some allies in the FBI um, that were able to, you know, move the needle and, and give them some protections there. But of course, um, we all know that things did not change overnight and still have not changed to the point that, that they should have. I know that um, when I was in college, you know, I would read a textbook and it would have maybe, if, if we were lucky, you know, a picture showing the, the um, breakfast program and there'd be like a blur, but nothing really more. When I read Power Hungry, you know, I really get a sense of the time period. And I, I think it's the personal stories, like the ones you just told, that really kind of outline it. Because I think otherwise, the narrative is that, oh, look, there was this cute little breakfast program and it happened in a vacuum, et cetera. But, you know, I think anything nice that was happening came at great struggle. Do you think we lack this kind of narrative in our education system, both, you know, in the up to high school and, and college? Oh, there's so much to be said around that. Um, I mean, and it's interesting, and my kids are in Brooklyn, and I definitely live in a liberal bubble. Um, and um, my children have had um, more um, teachers of color than white teachers, and um, people are very sensitive to where my kids go, both to daycare and now you know, my kids are four and 10 now. Um, and so I I don't think that they are lacking that education. Plus I'm their mom and I tell them stories, but um, you know, I had my cousin come and she lives in Nashville and she said, you know, her kid is probably in one of the most um, liberal places that she could possibly be in Nashville. And you're, you know, what, what her kid is not learning in school is astounding. You know, they, yeah. they cannot mention the existence of LGBTQ people. Um, you know, there's there, you know, I think about the, you know, then even the narratives around Thanksgiving, um, you know, that my kids are not taught what I was taught. And, um, yeah. you know, and there's so much around um, civil rights and indigenous rights and indigenous experience that is just not um, taught to her kid. And so I think more broadly, you know, yes, there's, we're going backwards in what um, the curriculum is for um, so many kids around the country. And, um, and it's really, it's, it's, it's shameful because, um, you know, I'm doing research now um, in Italy, which we could talk about at the end of our chat. Uh, but to think about how, let's just say how Germany has um, reckoned with their difficult past, and they've done it through education, and how Italy to, you know, different degrees has grappled with um, their fascist past, and they did it through education, not as much as Italy. But, um, you know, we in the United States have have not grappled with this. And I certainly am not the only person talking about this. Um, you know, we have Clint Smith, who's written a lot about that, um, both in his books and articles. And, you know, this is something that to think that, that this is not, does not have a political agenda is, would be foolish. It absolutely does. And it's absolutely to keep 
um, people under um, the oppressed people more oppressed and and to keep people um, from thinking critically. Absolutely. What kind of um, lessons does Power Hungry have for us today? Oh, I hope that people are inspired and, you know, after that, uninspiring or maybe it's inspiring to create change, but um, a depressing note. Um, I think there are so many people who um, can, we can look to these women and men and, and just be like, what what will it take for us to um, to work beyond, to, to work for a cause beyond our own individual interests? And that's a question I'm very much interested in. Um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm developing, thinking about a class um, that I might be able to teach at NYU around this. Um, and I, I keep coming back to this question in, in, in the different um, things that I've been researching is like, these are people who really truly were willing to die for a cause. And, um, you know, I, do, I don't know if I could say the same thing. I don't know, you know, and can, can we inspire people to the point now in the United States around these issues of what what would you dedicate your life to? What kind of change do you want? How could we work to make that change? Um, you know, and also the power of of people coming together, you know, doing this together, we we really we really can create change. When you think about what the Panthers did, for instance, but also what they did during Freedom Summer, you know, to um, you know, to have accomplished so much despite um having <laughs> the US government, having the FBI undermining you. Um, you know, that to me is so hopeful of what, of what we, of what we can accomplish. So I hope, I hope people are inspired. I'd like to talk about your next book, um, The Women of War, The Italian Assassin Spies and Queers Who Fought the Nazis. Can you talk a little bit about this next book coming up? Oh, certainly. I just got back from, if I'm a little, um, jet lagged today, it's because I only got back from Italy, um, about 48 hours ago, but um, I was there for five weeks on this great research trip, and I was there um, the previous summer too, last summer. Um, I mean, this story was born kind of at the same time, the the, the seeds of it were planted um, when I was first discovering um, Ellen Quinn's story years ago now, a couple of years ago now. Um, and then after I finished that last book, Power Hungry, um, I was like, what do I want to work on next? And I really wanted to go back to this story. And it actually, um, the woman that I was profiling in that old version. I'm not even focusing on her anymore. Um, I'm focusing on these four other women who are just, um, I'm, I mean, they're four anti-fascist women during the Nazi occupation of World War, um, of Italy during World War II. Um, and the things that they did to fight the Nazis, to fight fascism were just, um, you know, astounding. I mean, they definitely risked their lives and the women were so long, um, you know, underappreciated, unsung during this time. I mean, women were keeping the resistance alive. I mean, because the men had to be in hiding or they would be deported um, or jailed um, if they weren't working, you know, with and for the fascists and, and Nazis. And so, you know, women were the one who, ones who transported um, arms and information. They were the ones who could plant the bombs. They were the ones who could spy and get information. Um, you know, so these stories are, are really dramatic and, and really fascinating. And again, I'm doing this deep dive into history. I kind of had the bare bones of what I thought I knew was taught, understood about World War II and um and about you know particularly in in Italy and now I'm learning so much more about this time and you know also the term fascism has been brought up over the last you know six eight years or so and you know I I think those who are experts on the topic um would not say that you know we are that you know the United States is is delving into fascism or was but um you know to truly understand how these strong arm leaders um, took power and held power um, and how they're, some are doing so today. I mean, that is, again, another really important history that we um, as Americans, as, as citizens should understand so that we can, um, you know, not just let power structures do whatever they want, but we should be aware and say, okay, how can we make sure that our voices are heard and that, um, yeah, people are not doing things in their self-interest as opposed to the self-interest of the people. I wanted to ask you one last question. Um, you must have had letters since Power Hungry came out from people who, um, you know, were part of the program or benefited from the program. What is uh, some of the letters or feedback or emails you've gotten that have kind of moved you the most? Oh, I did hear from, yeah, some folks who 
Um, I had some people who emailed and said, oh, here are more women. I want you to tell the stories of other women who were doing these amazing things. And I, you know, I wrote back, I was like, I wish I could. Um, and then I um, came, I met this um, other woman who is, um, oh my gosh, she's just amazing. Um, she is, is running, I guess, I guess you could say running. She created this um, uh, mural of, um, of Black Panther women in oh. um in oakland california and she kind of has an informal um black panther uh, museum on the first floor of her house and she just has such amazing um energy and um yeah i should i should send it to you so you could um a link so you could you could link it um okay i'll, I'll do that yeah yeah it would be so great and she's just a wonderful person so she's probably inspired me the most because um and she i'm forgetting her exact story but um was maybe her, maybe she went to the breakfast programs or she had, you know, she had some connection to it as a, as, as a, as a youth. And, um, and then to come back and really see that this is her, um, this is what she sees as her, her quest in life is to make sure that these women are getting the, the due that they deserve and that um, the Panthers in general are, are being honored as they deserve. Um, yeah, that's just been really wonderful. And then um, other folks too, just hearing the stories from other Panthers of saying they've come into um, contact with um, people who maybe like in one case, a woman I interviewed for the book um, in New York, and she said that her, her kid's teacher um, was like, I, I was a kid who the Panthers fed and, um, and, and I, you know, I went to college, I'm a teacher now and was just so thankful. So just to see those stories of how people's individual lives were changed was really powerful. Suzanne, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. We'll have links to Power Hungry in the bio, as well as to some of your other books and uh, websites. Suzanne, thanks for being on the, the podcast. Thanks so much, Dean. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Suzanne Cope. Her new book, Power Hungry, is available through all major distributors and at all better bookstores. It is also available at your local library. Next week, I'll be talking with Allison Walsh about her new book, A Literary Picnic, as well as author Linda Skeens about her book, Blue Ribbon Kitchen. I hope you enjoyed this talk. Until next week, I'll be seeing you at the library.